Hello, fellow foodies, and welcome back. This is Dr. Cassandra Quave, and you're listening to Foodie Pharmacology, the science podcast for the food curious. Now, if you were following me over the winter holidays, you'll know that I was off adventuring across Egypt. And one of the amazing places that I was able to stay and really learn a lot about Egyptian agriculture is at Sekum. And after this trip, I just knew I had to bring on this guest to share with you all the exciting work that they're doing on biodynamic um, farming and sustainable development in the country. So our guest today is Helmi Abolish. He's the CEO of Sekum Holding, the Initiative for Sustainable Development in the Egyptian Desert. And this organization works holistically with four pillars of sustainable development. The first being ecology, so in terms of biodynamic agriculture and its promotion. They also work on the pillar of economy of love, production of phytopharmaceuticals, organic textiles, and food. They work on the pillar of social life, so sustainable community development, and cultural life, individual potential unfolding through their schools, um, their university, Heliopolis University, and also the medical center. So um, it's great to have you on the show today, Helmi. And, you know, it, it was such a, an amazing time that I had um, working with folks in your, in your um, organization. And I know that the audience is going to love learning about all the great things you guys are doing. Thank you very much for inviting me here. And it was our pleasure to have you with us. And it was a really inspiring and productive time we had together. Absolutely. Well, why don't we start with a, maybe a little bit of history of SECOM. This is an organization that was started by your father. What can you tell us about, about this, this organization? The idea, the vision of SECOM um, dates back to 1975. Mm-hmm. My father, a born Egyptian who lived uh, and worked in Austria, where he married my mother and <laughs> where I was born and my sister Mona were born, um, uh, in 1975 decided that he wants to show us, the family, his home country, Egypt. Mm-hmm. And so we went there, we had a tour around uh, the whole of Egypt from Aswan in the south, Luxor, Abda, Cairo, and to Alexandria. And, 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 and for us, it was a fantastic adventure. Of course, you can imagine seeing the pyramids and the camels in the desert. For him, it was quite an, a coal, <laughs> you know, an outer coal, which sometimes uh, comes from the world when, uh, when you look out and you see that there is something going on which needs your acti- activity, your, your input. And this wake-up call after being 20 years away and uh, living in, in, in Austria was really um, a, a game-changer for us, for him, for our life. Because then over the next one, two years, he started to think, what is it what he can do? to provide solutions to these unbelievable challenges Egypt, as many other countries in the world, but Egypt in particular is facing in regard to pollution, to water scarcity, climate change, uh, education, uh, obviously poverty, job creation and and economics, and uh, this overpopulation issue, which is just unbelievable. When he left Egypt in the 50s, there were 18 million Egyptians, and today we are 110 million. So you can imagine how 
difficult this is. So having said all this, he thought about possible ways to contribute to the system change, which he could already then see coming. He was sure that the system change is needed, that the current system will not uh, or cannot uh, provide solutions which are sustainable and uh, resilient. And so he studied uh, in, in one or two years biodynamic agriculture as a base for desert land reclamation, for a more resilient uh, food system, which is organic farm, but at the same time provides livelihoods and healthy food, healthy animals, healthy plants. And this uh, idea of having uh, biodynamic uh, agriculture as the base for this development obviously was pretty much a no-go for all the people around him because there was no biodynamic agriculture in the desert and not in Africa and there was not even an organic agriculture around mm -hmm. in 1975. So everyone told him this is impossible, this only works in Germany but not in in Egypt and, and forget about and so on. He insisted that this is what he wants to do. And not only that he wants to do biodynamic agriculture, but that he wants to, when he succeeds and has done biodynamic raw materials, he wants to sell, sell them in Egypt. And everyone told him organic products are expensive and you will never find anyone in Egypt who will buy organic products. And he wanted to sell them in a system he called Ektisad al-Mahabba, or economy of love. And this obviously sounded very fishy for most of the people around him who were convinced that the only functioning system is a, a competitive uh, capitalistic system. And economy of love sounds very nice, hugging, kissing, but not very competitive. And so everyone was sure this is again a no-go Mission Impossible, uh, and uh, yeah, people were not very, uh, very convinced that this is going to work. Biodynamic agriculture, economy of love, sounded too crazy. And then, to make it even worse, my father added, and by the way, it's not about the economy, it's not about the products, it's not even about the agriculture. It's about human beings in the center of everything we do. So we have to keep uh, the human uh, being potential unfolding in the midst of everything we do. Everything we do must contribute, whether it's work, whether it's school, whether it's home, whether it's community, must contribute to education, learning, capacity building, potential unfolding. And then everybody told him, ah, oh, this is the role of the government, of the schools, of the high schools, of the universities. What do you care if you want to be even a social entrepreneur? You cannot manage all these different things. He was not convinced and added another mission impossible to make it complete and said, and by the way, we need also to care for the society. We need to uh, dedicate uh, a certain amount of our income to corporate social responsibility as a term did not exist. So it sounded again pretty, uh, pretty much uh, impossible. So biodynamics, 
economy of love, potential unfolding or community development as a business model didn't sound very convincing and so nobody wanted to go with him, nobody wanted to invest money into this project and everyone told him the only thing we can we can really uh, uh, advise you is if you wish to, to lose some of your money in the desert, okay, but <laughs> your house in Austria so that when you lost your money then you can go home to Austria where everything is okay again and then it's nice. So the first thing he did was selling the house to make it a message <laughs> to everyone that there is no going home, we, we, we are going to do it and uh, we're not intending to go home. So this is the history of how it all started. It's I mean, amazing. It's, well, I know I was just there, you know, this is 50 years post this dream. And now you have these incredible eco villages with local children being receiving an incredible education. You've got job creation, you have reclamation of otherwise des de desertified, you know, arid land. Um, you have a booming economy around the crops that are feeding people and the medicinal products. I mean, his dream came to fruition. Um, and that's, that's an incredible thing. You don't see that so, so, so often, I think, with a lot of these big, bold ideas. You must be very proud um, to be a part of that. I indeed am very proud. I'm very happy to be here, to be able every day in the morning to wake up uh, to contribute to such a, a vision and uh, um, Actually, we, we at the, the SACOM community, which in the meantime has 2,000 co-workers in the different uh, economic activities, thousands of farmers all over Egypt who are biodynamic uh, certified or working according to the biodynamic method, hundreds of kids in our schools and many thousand patients in our hospital. And of course, as you have seen, 3,000 students at the Heliopolis University for Sustainable Development where they get a pretty, uh, yeah, I would say pretty uh, modern uh, uh, basic education in sustainable development, all different dimensions linked obviously to their profession and their specialization. So I think this miracle which unfolded in, uh, in front of me and all the other members of the community and also in particular, the Future Council, which is the inner circle of those who really care for this vision, uh, is just unbelievable, very, very uh, self-fulfilling, of course, and, 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 and every one of us is very happy to be able to, to join. And obviously, we always get the question, how is it possible? How, how is such a mission impossible against all logic coming into reality? And I think there are many different reasons and uh, one of them is of course that biodynamic agriculture turned out to work perfectly in the desert. Mm -hmm. The other one is that economy of love turned out to be very very competitive. So today we are working with this system of economy of love products in Egypt. 80% of our products go to, to the Egyptian market and we compete with multinationals like Unilever and Nestle and are able to compete and to to, uh, to, to keep, uh, to be the market leaders in herbal teas, as you have seen, and, and so on. Yeah. So, economy of love turned out not to be just nice, <laughs> but also very efficient, productive. Very efficient, 
Well, I think a big part of this, this, the ethos, I think that was so impre- impressed upon me while I was at Segum is this idea of, of, of everyone has value. You know, I remember the first day I was asked to get up, you know, right before dawn and like, we're going to go stand in a circle. <laughs> like, what do you mean I have to get up this early and stand in a circle? <laughs> but this circle was, it was just such an amazing way to start the day because for the listeners out there, there are, you know, a hundred or more people, hundreds in some cases of people in a circle. And, you know, we begin with words of inspirations and it could be from anyone. It can be from the, you know, the most, the most uh, fundamental farmer. It could be from a manager. It could be from a scientist. It could be from anyone that's there. We're all standing there together and start with these words of inspiration and, and discussion and people talk about their plans for the day. It's just, it's just such a great unifying way to bring forward the day. And I, I kind of wish I could replicate that somehow with my research group. I don't know if I could get them out of bed that early though <laughs> to, to, to start their day, but it, it's just, I think it was a really good um, example of, of how things operate there. Now, there are a couple of things I definitely want to make sure we have time to get into. And um, one is the process of, of, basically farming in a desert. A lot of people are probably not aware that there's a lot of water under the Sahara, for example, that can be brought up and, but the soil is very poor. So I want to hear more about how you all have innovated around composting to, to restore soil. And then I definitely want to get into the work that you do with local farmers. These are farmers that don't work for Sekum, but are Egyptian farmers that are selling products and how you're really teaching them helping them enter the biodynamic farming market and also exploring these concepts of carbon credits. So maybe we can start first with the question of how do you restore otherwise, you know, just very bare soil? We're talking about sand. How do you farm in sand? How does that even start? Okay, let me try to paint the picture by just using, first of all, the colors. When you come into the desert, it's either white or light yellow sand storms and uh, this obviously is not a very alive soil and has not a lot of organic matter and not a lot of carbon and nothing and then you watch this uh, soil and it gets darker and darker and when you come to Sekim farm today as you did then it's black soil huh? And what you what you watch with your eyes, this light white sand getting darker and darker, is a process which happens, which is from the one side, of course, sequestering tons and tons of CO2 carbon in your soils, but from the other side, billions and billions of microorganisms in all different shapes and forms, which enliven your soil, and by this happening, the, the soil getting alive, a living soil, uh, there is a lot of things which change uh, in, um, in, in the quality of the soil. So from the one side, as I said, the soil can sequester and sink carbon, but from the other side, it also handles water in a much more efficient way and you save 20 to 40% less water, the better uh, the soil properties get. And last but not least, 
you are even able to handle salinity issues because whenever you go into the desert and you have to irrigate and whatever few amounts of minerals and salts you have in your in your water these minerals and salts will stay and accumulate at the surface of your soil and before you know after a few years your soil is getting more and more salty on the surface and it's getting more and more difficult for plants to survive or produce healthy crops and yields. So this is this is what you can watch, but how you do it, it's very much around crop rotation. It's very much around compost and adding organic matter in the best possible way than it's compost. Uh, also in green manure and other formats. It's, of course, uh, very, very important to have a very sound, intelligent uh, soil management. And when you go in the desert where you have 40, 50 degrees in the summer and you just plow your ground and open it to the sun, then you cannot expect your productivity to increase, your carbon content to go up, or your microorganisms to be very happy or your water holding capacity to, to develop. So it's also about how you keep your surface closed and as close as possible, how you surround your farm with trees and uh, bushes, how to create a kind of an agroforestry system where the microclimate which you change within such a farm uh, allows then animals and insects to live and thrive and and biodiversity to improve and uh, and, and so things fall together um, but it's all a concept the holistic uh, soil and farm development concept where plants trees bushes crop rotation and obviously animal husbandry because for manure and good compost, you need animals behind. And it can be difficult, different animals from chicken to ducks to sheep and, uh, and cows, of course. But in the end, uh, there is an element of, of the animal, which is also part of this, we call it uh, farm organism. Uh, and it's yeah a piece of social ecological and cultural art, agriculture, you, you get human uh, spirit in connection to nature to evolve with something which was not there before. So this is the kind of picture I can just try to draw and it's something which farmers uh, in previous centuries had in their hands and minds and hearts, which they lost slightly on different levels in different countries uh, over the last uh, 100 years and um, and they got more dependent on input calculations and technology and big tractors chemical fertilizers pesticides to handle your your pests and so on and and, and forgot about all this wonderful harmony in nature and balance you can also also well, that, that brings up another question I have. Um, can you define for us what is 
biodynamic agriculture. I think a lot of our listeners have heard of terms like organic agriculture, but and even regenerative agriculture. But is biodynamic agriculture does that differ from those two? Um, what are what are some of the main characteristics? I mean, biodynamic uh, agriculture is um, has been. Um, firstly spoken about by Rudolf Steiner 100 years ago in 1924 in Koberwitz, which was directly after the First World War, directly after this change in the agricultural system to chemical fertilizers induced by Liebig and his uh, invention of nitrogen and so on. And so it's the oldest format of organic agriculture. I think it's the most holistic because it includes cosmic influences and you have a, a seed seeding uh, and seedlings calendar. So you try to look into certain constellations of planets, moon and so on to find the right timings for cultivation and harvest and weeding and so on. It, it tries to add some uh, medicinal plants in homeopathic uh, concentrations to enhance soil life and the microbiome of the soil and of the compost and then it has this social and cultural dimension where it's not only about potatoes and crop yields but also about other uh, values societal cultural uh, um, added values which are very important in biodynamic farming so it's a very holistic farming method it's considered organic it's within the umbrella of organic regenerative which is trying to to also be more holistic than uh, plain organic let's say would be very near i think in many regards to biodynamic uh, but in the end i think uh, sustainable agriculture uh, whether it's permaculture agroecology organic regenerative biodynamic all of them are very, very, very near. And instead of looking to the differences, let's look to the to the many uh, uh, things which are in common. And then I think diversity also in the agricultural methods is a very nice uh, uh, thing to have more than one option, to have more than one possibility, and everyone can choose what fits him and his context. That's great. Well, within within these areas, um, I just want to definitely tell the audience a little bit about two of your sites. We have one that's north of Cairo, and then one that's what is it like a five hour drive out into the you know almost to the White Desert, um, yeah. which is an amazing amazing thing. It's in the Bawiti um, Oasis, so you imagine driving by car five hours into desert and you begin to wonder, will you ever see life again? <laughs> and then all of a sudden the palm, the date palms start to appear in the distance. And um, I think some of the crops I was most impressed with um, were definitely the jojoba that you grow and also the incredible um, hibiscus. Um, the Egyptian hibiscus is just uh, such an amazing ingredient for teas and, and as a beverage. Um, what are some of the other crops that, that you know, Sekum really prides itself on, on cultivating? I mean, when you go to this particular beautiful Wahat oasis, Wahat al-Bahareya oasis, where Bawiti is the capital of this huge oasis of 40,000 people, uh, when you go there, 
uh, everything changes. You are not in the Nile Delta anymore. You are not in a 5,000 year old agricultural uh, uh, history, but you are in a place where date palms are everything. They are the, the, the source of life, the source of food, the source of wealth. And when you ask a Wahati person, what do you do? Then he will never tell you, I uh, cultivate 10 acres. He will tell you, I have 167 palm trees. This is the way they count in palm trees. This is their life. They don't count in area. So obviously what we are doing there also big time are palm trees. You have seen them in different stages and different varieties. Uh, but I think the palm tree is a beautiful, wonderful tree because with a small amount of, uh, of water, uh, he produces a very, very, very rich, balanced nutrition, which for these people in the previous decades and centuries was very often the major source of, of food. And so dates is, I think, the most important crop we produce there. But as you also have seen, we have some prickly pears, which is another variety, uh, which is very, very nice in the desert because it doesn't need water again. It produces very, very nice fruits and um, fodder for the animals. Uh, and yeah, for this particular crop, we even use our own wastewater, uh, agricultural wastewater. Uh, which means it's uh, it's really uh, a very resistant, resilient crop. And then we have crops like Moringa, which you also have seen, you remember, the Moringa bushes, which are fantastic because uh, you can uh, yeah, irrigate them very seldom or seeds and, and, and leaves, or senna. Senna is a, is a plant which is unbelievable. You went there and you couldn't believe it, but there was no irrigation system for the last five years. And there is still a Senna plant in the midst of the desert and produces pots and leaves of Senna, which is the most efficient uh, laxative, uh, natural laxative in the world. Huh? So these are the kind of things we are searching for. We want to find products which are working in the desert, which do not need a lot of water, uh, and which can survive even without water for a long period of time. And there are medicinal herbs, a lot of them, not everything, but medicinal herbs, uh, specific varieties of mint and uh, of, uh, um, you have seen them, marjoram and cymas and oregano and so on. They can do quite well without a lot yeah. of water. They then have a wonderful smell, a wonderful essential oil content and high quality, not very high yields, but uh, high quality. Yeah. So what we are trying to do there are this kind of crops and we search for the right combination together with a lot of trees, uh, bushes and um, uh, yeah. And over time, we will have also to balance our animal husbandry there because we need a lot of compost so we need a lot of manure and uh, buying manure in is okay for the beginning for the pioneer stage but at a certain stage such a farm organism must get self-sufficient and so we are just currently getting cows and sheep yeah. and trying to balance this out in our organism 
That's amazing. Well, for, for any of the listeners out there that are planning a trip to Cairo um, anytime in the future, definitely consider taking a trip out, um, again, out west to the western desert. The capital is called Bariti. It's in El Wahat al You have um, the white and black desert. Um, I also took my family camping in the white desert, and it was the most incredible experience I think we'd ever had. The stars are unlike anything you've seen in the world. I mean, the last time I saw stars that amazing was when I was in the middle of the Amazon River. So, I mean, you have amazing views of the skies. All right. I know we're we're running a little short on time, so I definitely want to get over to the amazing work you're doing with local farmers. So this is beyond SECM. This is, um, these are independent farmers. Tell us a little bit about the education program and how, you know, how are you tackling problems of poverty and and building capacity for farmers in the country to teach them about, about techniques such as biodynamic farming? I mean, uh, it's a, a story which again evolved over the last 45 years. From the very beginning, wanting to be a model for system change, of course, we were always uh, interacting with farmers from all uh, governorates of Egypt, from the north to the south, trying to uh, convince them to go to biodynamic farming, teaching them how to do it, supporting them with inputs, technology, uh, seeds, biological pesticides, and uh, uh, if needed, compost. And yeah, and through economy of love, giving them also security to invest into this biodynamic system and to be sure that they can sell their product in the end for a fair price so that they can care for their families and kids and send them to school and so on. And we did this for many, many decades, three, four decades now. And then at a certain stage, we had to say, okay, now it seems to work. We have these wonderful results. We are in the market. Our farmers are happy. We are happy. But there are 7 million farmers out there and we have only 1,000. Who are biodynamic? So, what about the remaining six million nine hundred ninety-nine thousand? And so we started to really uh, look why is biodynamic, or organic, or regenerative not yet mainstream? Not in America, not in Europe, and obviously not in Egypt. And so then uh, it turned out that end result after many studies and comparing also many studies in the world, price seemed to be of the essence. I mean, the, 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 the unbelievable truth is that even in the US, even in Germany, where people have a 20-fold higher um, income per capita, where the education allows them to understand why organic is better for the environment and better for health and better for um, for the whole ecosystem, and still 95, 96, 94% of the consumers buy conventional, uh, even in these countries. So the reason is the price. And so we said, okay, is really organic more expensive? Why does it always seems to be more expensive? And we did then a lot of research at our university uh, with a methodology called true cost accounting, which has been developed uh, 10 years or 20 years ago by the FAO and other agencies. And true cost accounting basically 
checks out what is the real price of this wonderful organic biodynamic orange juice in comparison to a conventional one. And on the shelf, it seems 20% more expensive. But when you consider the externalized costs of the conventional juice, the impact on climate through CO2 emissions, the impact on pollution of wastewater through pesticides and chemical fertilizers, and the impact on health through accumulative health impact on human beings and so on, then the biodynamic is much cheaper. Unfortunately, this doesn't show on the shelf, but it's the reality. So we could explain this story to many of the consumers in Egypt and anywhere else. And then they enter the supermarket, the, the Walmarts or the Carrefours of the world. And while you, they enter and you interview them, they all swear to Allah and God that they will now only buy organic. And then you watch them and they come out and it, nothing happens. Huh? So these very convincing arguments <laughs> about two-cost accounting did not change customer behaviors, purchase behavior, or anything. So we said, okay, then we need to find another way to monetize the ecosystem services. And the current obvious one, because everyone speaks about climate, is the, the, the climate impact. And agriculture, as you know, is one of the biggest contributors to climate change. Uh, historically, over the last 200 years, even bigger than energy. I mean, now agriculture and forest management, of course, together. And so, uh, and so every Egyptian uh, farmer on every single acre is emitting five tons of CO2 per year. So we said, what about the biodynamic farmers? And then we started with our own farm as a, as a, as a prototype. We measured CO2 sequestration in soils, in trees, or the avoidance of emittance and emissions of methane through controlled composting. And we came to the, the conclusion that we can easily uh, sequester or avoid emissions of 10, 15, up to 20 tons per acre. And there we found this to be a game changer, actually, because from the one side, this means that Egyptian farmers could single-handedly mitigate climate change, right? We could offset all of Egypt's CO2 emissions. But not only that, we could, by getting a fair price for our ecosystem service for the CO2 certificates, we could improve their incomes 100%. Mm. This means then that they could produce organic, sell it for the same price as conventional, or cheaper if they wish, but let's say the same price, which then everyone would buy, of course, if it's the same price, and have a 100% better income, so they would then be able to care for their families and for their development. So this was the idea we had two years ago. Then we said, okay, let's test it on 2,000 small holding farmers, farmers who have one to two acres. Huh? So they are really not big farmers and they are in the Delta and they have a lot of challenges, of course. Mm -hmm. uh, and it worked out. And now these 2000 farmers have um, received uh, CO2 certificates for nearly 80 or 90,000 tons um, of CO2 um, carbon credits. 
So how does and, the carbon credit system work? Is this basically where corporations buy into carbon credits to offset their emissions and then some of those funds go to these small stake farmers that have these certificates of, of carbon credits? Is that kind of how it, how, what's the practicality of how the, the funds flow? In, we are speaking now about the voluntary carbon credit market. Huh? So we are okay, not speaking about different. the voluntary okay. one between the states. We are speaking about the voluntary one. Mm -hmm. And in the voluntary one, it is voluntary. So when you come from the US to Egypt on an aeroplane, mm -hmm. and then you have the option to offset your CO2 emissions by tipping on your ticket uh, you want to offset. And then via Atmosphere, My Climate, or any other uh, company, you will offset the three, four, five tons of CO2 emissions you had from your flight and pay some extra uh, euros on your ticket just to make sure that you have offset voluntarily as a person your carbon footprint. The same concept goes for many companies in the meantime, small, medium and bigger companies who, without an obligation, uh, decide that they want to to offset their CO2 emissions, to really implement this concept of the race to zero and not increasing emissions, which the world speaks about since many decades, but nothing happens in the accounting, as you know. And some people take responsibility on their own uh, lifestyle and on their own footprint or the footprint of their companies and decide that they want to offset. And these are the people who search for carbon credit certificates of other uh, activities like afforestation. When you plant a tree, mm -hmm. you start to sequester carbon or uh, desert land reclamation or uh, organic farming uh, on land, then you sequester carbon in the soil. And so when, when me and you by <laughs> breathing out CO2 all the time, have a CO2 footprint, of course, all our lives, we can then offset our CO2 footprint by buying in certificates from farmers who are the real climate heroes, because they are, with their natural-based solutions, the ones who really can offset uh, the, the impact of what we emit. And this is where we tapped in. We found, first of all, partners in our own circles, and now bigger partners around us who are interested to buy this kind of carbon credits. And they buy them and uh, then the money goes back to the farmer and hence then the farmer can uh, enjoy producing organic potatoes, selling them at conventional price in his village. He doesn't even have to search for export markets or sophisticated yeah. markets and then gets this additional income, which will then uh, facilitate a lot of development. And I think we have now uh, committed to go to 40,000 farmers over the next two years, wow. which is a big, big challenge, I can tell you, because yeah. it's all about capacity building, education, uh, training, advisory services, which we are trying to provide. But I think this is another, another step in upscaling. And we hope, I hope, that we will reach over the next 10 years the critical mass at least, which is maybe 200,000 or 250,000 farmers, 10, 15, 20% of, 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 of the total area of Egypt. And then, as you know, when, when you reach the tipping point, the, the, the whole system changes by itself, then it's yeah. going to this mainstream, is, I hope. 
This is incredible, Helmi. Um, for the listeners out there that are interested in maybe thinking about ways to offset their carbon um, footprints, is there a, a, a website you could we could send them to, or what? Where where could they and you know purchase? I guess offsets for their own carbon. <laughs> I I'm, I'm I'm this is all still very new to me, so I, I'm yeah, sure it's yeah. new to many people. Like, how do you actually do this? Um, like, because I do fly a lot, and I I want to offset some of those flights. <laughs> I mean, when when you do it in conjunction with buying your ticket, then you will be offered this by your airline. Uh, but if you want to do it for your yearly footprint, which is, mm-hmm. by the way, easily with online tools on Google, uh, you can do it with entering your own data, then you will also find around you a lot of people who offer this. But if you want to have the best ever carbon credits in the world, then you go on the Seiken website, where we can then dirigate you to direct you to the Economy of Love website, where we have a registry by the by the by the carbon credits of these smallholding farmers, and and then you can buy them from there. But That's I have to be very clear: you can do the same in the US, and there are farmers already now in the US who are doing a fantastic job with regenerative agriculture. And they also account and uh, register their carbon credits. And so I think uh, uh, there is, for those who are really interested now, nearby a possibility to do this with farmers and people from their own context and, 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 and communities. I think this is how change happens, right? It, it starts at the local level. It starts with individual farmers um, supporting especially, like you said, small-scale small farmers that don't have these tremendous resources, but really encouraging systemic change for good. This is good for the planet. It's good for our health. It's good for our food systems. There's just so many benefits from supporting um, biodynamic um, agriculture. Well, thanks so much, Helmi, for coming on the show. It's been incredible to see you again, and I learned even more about um, all the great things you guys are doing, and I'm, I'm sure the listeners did as well. Thank you very much for inviting me. It was my pleasure and I hope we stay in contact and uh, learn from each other both ways. I can tell you all the time. Great. Thank you. Thank you've, you been listening, you've been listening to Foodie Pharmacology, the science podcast for the food curious recorded for you today on Restream. I want to send a big shout out of thanks to our producers, to Rob Cohen and Christine Roth of Co-Conspiracy Entertainment. Also, if you're looking for ways to support the show, um, you can do that by heading over to mysterycontrol.com and picking up some fun merch, or you can buy me a coffee. Go to buymeacoffee.com slash foodie pharma to... Um, put forward a coffee and that's just enough to help us keep the production going. So thank you so much for listening. I want you all to stay healthy out there and we'll see you next time.